0: Thank you for visiting theopenword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of this series from Alan Schaefer. Let's pick up with verse 10 and uh, see how far we get tonight. Now, so far it's all been nice stuff, right? Sort of been, hey, how you doing? House of kids, everything's going fine, you know. Now, now he's going to start in on the issue. Verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Hitting the hitting the issue of division. Now, before we get into this too far, let me ask a question. Is division wrong in a church? Yes. Yes. Is division wrong in a church? Yes. It depends on what you... Sort of a yo, right? Yes and no. Depends on what you mean by that, right? Let's say you're in a church and, some, and, and you know, the pastor comes in and he tells the congregation, you know, I've been studying the Bible quite a bit lately. And I've uh, determined that Jesus Christ really isn't God. No, no. Now, what do you do? Should have division <laughs> in the there should be some division <laughs> there, right? Division <laughs> the All right, because why? Because that—that that is doctrinal error, is heresy. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, is that what Paul is talking about here? No. No. If it was an issue of doctrinal heresy, how would Paul have dealt with it? He would have said so, right? I mean, there's plenty of other books where Paul deals with doctrinal heresy, and he goes right after him, doesn't he? Um, Hymenaeus and Alexander have taught that the resurrection is past. Paul says, throw those bums out of the church. Turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Um, it, it, we're not saying here, and this is the point to understand, we're not saying that every... Issue of division is bad. It depends on what it is over. All right. If it's over an essential point of theology, an essential point of doctrine that is going to cause gross doctrinal error, it's going to send somebody to the wrong eternal destination. Look, that is something that you need to divide over. You need to have division. But if it's not over that, what are we encouraged to do? Unity. 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 So the thing to be very careful of here is as we, we look at this whole issue of division, is that it's division over what? Okay? Division over what. And what the Bible teaches very clearly is where there should not be division is over personality issues. Okay, over, over over issues of preference, over issues of the way you do things. Um, that's not to be it. Why is that not to be it? Well, what does it say here that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment? What does it mean to be joined together in the same mind and the same judgment? And what does that mean? Thinking the same way. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean? To, does it mean you all think exactly alike? Mm-hmm. Now, what does it mean? You all have the same goal, right? It, the, the Bible, nowhere does the Bible say that you're supposed to just all think alike, like a bunch of little rubber duckies, you know, all quack in, the, in unison. That's not that's not what the Bible talks about. What the Bible does say is that we all have the same goal. We all have the same purpose we all have the same reason for being here we may discuss and 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 have different opinions on well how best to do this or how best to do that or what's the best way we can use our resources to accomplish you know these kingdom goals but the kingdom goals themselves are not the thing to be in question and we may have to One one of the things we need to do as christians is is what does it say in philippians Look, not every man on his own things, but every man on things of others. I am to defer to other people. You know, I'm I'm to be willing to defer. You know, I don't have to have my way. If you have a group of people that all want their own way, what do you have? Kindergarten, right? (laughs) And yet our church is full of people that act like a bunch of kindergartners. They don't sing the songs the way I like. They don't sing enough songs. They sing too many songs. The preacher preaches too long. He doesn't preach long enough. He doesn't use enough sermon illustrations. He doesn't—he illustrates too much. The choir sings too long. It sings too loud. It doesn't sing loud enough. I want them to sing contemporary hymns. I don't want contemporary hymns. I want old hymns. I don't want that. I want the Gregorian chant. You know, I—and it goes on and on and on. I'm making fun of this stuff here. But, you know, we all relate to this, don't we? Go to your church. How many how many fights in the church are over things that eternally matter nothing at all? Absolutely nothing. Churches are split over the color of carpet and the church foyer. The color John MacArthur said the biggest fight they had at Grace Community Church was what color to paint the women's bathroom. You say, wait a minute, that's that's his church. Tr- wait, well, well what is it? We're we're what do you have in your church? Paul is in here saying, you know what? When it comes to divisions, there's no room in the church for divisions among the brethren over issues that are non-preferential. If they were, if there were issues of doctrine or issues of sin or issues of morality, Paul would deal with those. In fact, he does later on, doesn't he? He says, you know that guy who's sleeping with his, his stepmother? If he doesn't repent, throw him out of the church. Now, is that division? It sure is. Why? Because hes it's a pattern of gross immorality. It's, a, it's an issue of gross sin. In those cases, you have to deal harshly. But you know what? That's not what churches fight over, don't they? The biggest fights you have in churches is over what version of the Bible do we use? What color of the hymn book? What should we have for the potluck dinner? I I read a story, somebody said this one time they had this church, this ugly massive church split, and they're trying to figure out what caused it and as they worked their way back, they worked it back to a potluck where one elder of the church got a bigger portion of beef than the other. I don't know if that's a true story, but you know what? I can I can I probably believe that. Can you imagine church being split because you know, his piece of chicken's a little bit bigger than mine. And you know what? We laugh about it, but you know, the sad thing is that that's exactly what churches are splitting over. And when it comes to doctrine, that doesn't bother us. I remember Howard Hendricks in church here. He came here and did a seminar one time. He says, you know, he said, I've been in churches where it is easier to change the doctrinal position of the deity of Christ than it is to rearrange the furniture on the platform. Because we get so petty. And in the church, there is no room. Folks, there's no room for personality cults. There's no room for pettiness. Why? Because we are fighting a war for the survival of our church. We're fighting a war out there. We have a bigger issue than what color the carpet is. Or what color hymn book should we use? Or should we sing two solars or one on a Sunday morning? That is all irrelevant stuff. And Paul is saying to these people here, listen, I don't want there to be any divisions among you. I don't want people to be drawing off contingents and trying to split and fracture the church. You know, that's one of the best ways Satan has to defeat the church, isn't it? Look at what's happening right now in our Congress as an example. Yeah, no, that's preschool. Um, they're preschoolers. Whatever your political persuasion is on the war, it's not the point. The point is we got people out there who would just as soon kill you as to look at you. So, how do you deal with that? We're so busy fighting each other that what's it doing to the enemy? It's, you know, they say if we just keep them fighting over there, they'll, they'll, they'll fight each other and leave us alone, and we can do what we want. What do you think Satan does? If I can just get these churches fighting and scrapping among themselves, you know what? I don't have to worry about them. They're so busy with each other that I don't have to deal with them. I can just leave them alone and go off and do my own thing. How did, how did Satan attack the church in Acts? Remember, what did he try to do in Acts chapter six? Division, right? You have the widows who who are not getting fed their daily portion and they were starting to cause a division and a fracture. Division is deadly in a church. Division is deadly. And Paul is saying here, listen, there should be no divisions among you because you should all have the same goal. Now let me ask a question. If you are spirit-filled, And I am spirit filled. What's going to be our relationship? Right. Why is that? We have the same spirit, right? So if there is a if there is friction and division between us, what is true? One or both of us is not what? Walking in the spirit. Now that doesn't mean we can't discuss, you know, alternative methods to do things. But you know, we all have the same goal. We're all wanting the same prize. We all want to end up in the same spot. And I don't have this ego trip to say I've got to be right. I've got to have it my way. I, I've been here at Open Door now for 30 years almost, and I've seen I've seen them come and go, and I've seen people come in the door and leave. And sometimes I ask them, well, why'd you leave? One family left because she didn't the woman there didn't get to sing enough solos. Left the church. Now look, folks, are you gonna stand before the eternal God of the universe and say I didn't go to church because I didn't get to sing enough? You gonna have enough, you know, courage to say that in front of the holy angels and all the redeemed creation that I left church because I didn't get my way? They didn't let me sing a solo when I wanted to. That's kind of stupid, isn't it? And yet that's what churches split over. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be any division. Why? Because it's been reported, declared to me concerning you, by my brother, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Chloe has told me that you guys have having some fights. And what does this, this say? Now I say this, that each one of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. You got the Paulites, the Cephasites. The Apolloites and the Christites. And what are they doing? Well, you know, that's not what Paul says. You know, and Paul was better than Peter. You know, Apollo's a brain. That Paul's a dunce when it comes to Apollo. He's We follow Apollo. We follow this guy or that guy. Folks, that's not what it's all about. And then, of course, you have the super pious crowd say, well, we just follow Jesus. Now, let me ask a question. If you are following Jesus, what would they not be doing? Fight. Fighting. In fact, Paul says in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. And what was the mind? The mind was to sacrifice yourself, to sacrifice your wants, to sacrifice your desires, to put yourself out for the benefit of someone else. I don't need, you know. It's kind of. I've gotten to the point in my old age where, you know, I've. I i do not need to have my way. I really don't. I don't need my way done. You know, I. I've been on the boards in this church, and often, you know, I put out ideas. Say, well, here's my idea, and they say, well, that's pretty dumb. Okay, fine. I have no ego to. To be sacrificed on that. Why? We're all. We all want the same goal. We all want to win. But if you have a bunch of preschoolers or kindergartners in those boards, what do you have? I didn't get my way. They didn't like what I said. I, they didn't like my idea. They're not listening to me. I'm leaving. I'm going to take my ball. I'm going to go somewhere else. And we've seen people leave this church. I've seen people leave churches over the dumbest, stupidest reasons. They didn't get to sing enough solos. They didn't. They didn't. One said the music is too loud. The other one said the music's not loud enough. But if you don't get to use your spiritual gift in the church, shouldn't you leave and go somewhere else? If if the pastor tells you to shut up and not exercise your spiritual gift to sit in the pew, go somewhere where you can be used. In that case, you should go somewhere. But but to say, I didn't get my way. That What is it? That? That's that's like the two-year-old, right? Who doesn't get what he wants for dinner, he throws a temper tantrum. And yet we have a church full of people who throw spiritual temper tantrums when they don't get their own way. And Paul is saying, look, was Christ divided? Was Christ divided? What did Christ say? A house divided against itself shall not stand. Christ wasn't divided. And in fact, if anything here, did, did, did Paul, was he crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? No. No. When you have people say, well, we I got baptized by Paul. I don't know who you got baptized by, but I was baptized by Paul. Well, I got baptized by Peter. That's even better. And it's a bunch of two-year-olds. And Paul says, you know, I'm thankful to God. I didn't baptize any of you, except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. He says, I don't want to be part of your little pettiness. I don't want to deal with your little little temper tantrums and your little clicks. He says, I'm, I'm glad I didn't baptize. And maybe I baptized Stephanus. I don't know if I baptized anybody else. I didn't keep track of them. And Paul is saying, don't follow me. Follow who? Christ. Don't follow me. You really want people following you? You really want that? You want to follow in Christ, don't you? Don't follow. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the Christ's cross of Christ should be made of no effect. What did Christ send Paul to do? Not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And um, what does baptizing here mean? Mean dunking in water necessarily? Is that what it means? What Does it mean to be baptized into the church? Become a member. Become a member to be identified with, to be part of. And what was the right and what was the the way they did that in those days? Well, they signified it by baptism but the 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 um the meaning of baptism was not getting dunked in water the meaning of baptism was a public identification with the church there's a public way for me to say i am identifying with this what was the baptism of john people saying i agree with what john is preaching and they were baptized it's to become a member of, to become part of, to, to join, to be immersed into. What's baptism of the Spirit? It's to be immersed into the body of Christ. And Paul's saying, Christ did not come, you know, Christ's commission to me was not, I want you to go baptize a bunch of people. What was it to preach the gospel? Now let me ask a question. Who builds the church? Christ does. What's your job? It's your job to save people? Your job is to preach the gospel. And who, who's going to respond? Well, the elect are going to respond, but I don't know who they are, right? And and whether they respond or not, what am I still to do? Preach the gospel. Let, let Christ build the church. Let Christ bring the people in. Let Christ do that. That's not... Paul says, I was not called to build the church. I was called to preach the gospel. And Christ will build his church. Not me. Yeah, you know, you never you might have preached the gospel to someone, but you know what? You didn't save them. Who saved them? God did. Now you might have been the last one to talk to them, or you might have been the one there when they made their faith commitment to christ but you know what there are a lot of people that went before you that planted seeds and watered, and some may have pulled a weed out or answered a question and you're just in the long end process it's not up to you it's not your great erudite proclamation that does anything and that's what paul is saying here you know what it's not the glibness of your speech we have this idea well you know i better not say anything because you know i i don't i don't i don't i don't talk very well I can't witness because I, I don't have the words. I don't have the technique. What is a witness? What's a witness do? They share something that they seen or they've experienced. Yeah. Themselves. What did you see? What did you hear? How'd you feel? That's what a witness is in a court, right? Go up on the stand, I swear to tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but truth. Tell me, what did you see? What did you feel? What did you hear? That's all a witness is. What do you to tell people? What you saw, what you heard, what Christ has done for you. It's not your job to make them become a Christian. It's not your job to talk them into it. And that's one of the things Paul says here. He says, you know, I came here to preach not with the wisdom of words. Right? In fact, they say the hardest thing for a preacher to do is to get out of the way and let the word do its work. Because we want to get in the way, right? We have this idea that you know, the, the more, the, the larger the vocabulary, the more you can spout, the more long words you can use, the more effective you are. Is that true? No. And, and if that's what were the Corinthians looking for? They were looking for some smart person to come in there, right? They're looking for wisdom of words. They were looking for erudition. And you know what? If Paul was this glib, silver-tongued individual that was able to talk people in, would that be necessarily the work of God bringing them in? You understand? Let, let me. You understand this? When you witness to somebody and they come to know the Lord, it's not because of you. There's nothing you're going to do. That's going to keep an elect person out of heaven, and there's nothing you're going to do that's going to put a non-elect person in heaven. It's not up to you. A friend of mine was in E.E. and he, of course, they teach you in E.E. how to share your faith, how to witness. And he said, I, pardon? "I'm I was trying to do what you're saying. I was just wondering, what's the purpose of witnessing? That's the means whereby God's word is proclaim faith comes by hearing and hearing what God is you're part of the process you're part of that message being going to that person and God holds you responsible for doing what you're called to do what are you called to do preach what was Paul saying I was called to do what preach I'm not I'm not I'm it's not my responsibility to get the results that's God's responsibility my responsibility is to do what God has called me to do All right. And it's like what it says in Esther. Remember in Esther, when Esther comes before Mordecai, she says, you know, she says, well, if I go before the king, I'll be killed. And Mordecai says, well, he says, "Uh, you know what? Maybe God made you queen for this very purpose. You know, and if you don't do it, God will deliver his people. Right. Esther, if you don't go to the king, God's going to deliver his people. But you and your father's house will miss out on a blessing. If you don't tell an elect person about Christ, somebody else will. But who's going to miss the blessing? You are. are. Because God has called you to do that. Christ builds his church, not us. It's not us. He says in Matthew 18, I will build my church. He will do it. I am called to be faithful to preach, and God uses the proclaimed word that I preach and that I teach to convict and to bring people to salvation, but he's the one doing the work. My responsibility is to proclaim it, and if I don't proclaim it, someone else will, and that's one of those mysteries you just got to live with. (laughs) You know, why do you pray? Let me ask a question. Are you going to pray and change God's ultimate mind about anything? No. Of course not, right? Are you going to talk God into doing something he doesn't want to do? No. So why do you pray? It's a relationship. It's for your benefit. You're not going to talk God into doing something that God really doesn't want to do. But when you pray, what do you align? You align your will up with that of God. You align your desires with His desires, your wants with His wants. You're not aligning God with your wants. You're aligning you with His wants. That's that's the purpose of prayer. And we're called to pr- we're called to preach the word. Paul says, "I'm called to preach, but it's not my responsibility to save people because I can't. That's a work of the Holy Spirit." That's a work of God. And I need to make sure I don't deal with the glibness of words. And, you know, I was talking about my friend who who said, you know, he, he went on an e-presentation. He said, how would it go? He said, oh, it was, it was the best presentation I ever did in my life. He said, they should have taped that and show it to everybody how to do it. This is how you witness. This is the way it's done. What happened? Nothing. <laughs> he said he went out the next week. This is a true story. He said, I went out the next week. And he said, I witnessed, you know, I gave the presentation on how to go. I said, I did everything wrong you could think of. In fact, he said, they ought to tape that one to show how not to do it. I said, what happened? He said, everybody got saved. What does it say? It doesn't matter what you say. It's because it's not up to you. Now, you're responsible to share your faith. You're responsible to tell and proclaim the truth. But God does the saving. And see, that's something. Now, let me tell you something. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard sermons by pastors say, if you don't witness to your neighbor and they go to hell, it's all your fault. <laughs> now, wait a minute. If somebody goes to hell, whose fault is it? Your own. It's theirs. Mm-hmm. Now, what may God hold you responsible for? For not, for not doing what God has commanded you to do, which is to witness. But it's not your fault. Let me ask a question. If you really believe that, What would all of you be doing right now? You would do nothing but witness because you'd be scared to death that if you took five minutes to sleep, you'd miss an opportunity to save someone and it's all your fault that they're going to be in hell forever. It's that's not folks. It's it's a freeing concept to understand that God will save. It's not up to me. It is up to me to be faithful and to do what he's called me to do. But he is going to save these people, not me. It's not my responsibility. I can't save them. I can't talk them into heaven. And that's what Finney believed. Charles Finney, founder of Oberlin College. His idea was, I, if given an, given an opportunity, I can talk anybody into Christianity. I can save anyone. That's why he gave the altar call. That's why he had the altar call. That's where the, the Just As I Am and the 65 verses that you sing at the end of the service to get people to come forward and to, and to manipulate them and, and all of that stuff. The, the modern evangelistic Um, crusade mentality, that all comes out of this idea that given sufficient time and sufficient atmosphere and the right mood, you can talk anybody into heaven. You know what? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. So if people really knew, if churches really knew what the altar call was about, they'd probably take it out of their service, wouldn't they? They should. Now it doesn't mean necessarily that at the end of the service you say, you know, if you want to pray and you want to you know, we're here to help you. We're here to talk to you. But, but to have a formal—Christ didn't have formal altar calls when he finished preaching. Paul didn't have formal altar calls. That doesn't mean that you can't have one. Understand that? I'm not—I'm not saying that. But, I mean, it used to, our first pastor here, Don Ingram, wonderful guy, loved the Lord with all his heart. But you know, every every service he had in an altar call. Didn't matter what happened or what it was about. You had to spend the last 15 minutes with a salvation pitch and an altar call. And it's like there's sometimes when you preach it, it's a it's appropriate to have an altar call. Other times it's not. Whatever, you know, it, it's not you, you can't say, well, we didn't have an altar call today. We didn't do the right thing. And there's a bunch of people who can go to hell because the pastor forgot to have an altar call. You know, we we we, we, we back ourselves into that thinking. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's up to the Holy Spirit. God will save whom he will save. How do you know that? Here's the best example. You never probably thought of it this way. John chapter 3. Who shows up to Jesus in John 3? Nicodemus. And what's Nicodemus, ask him? Yeah, what do I do inherit the kingdom of God? How do I get there? That's that's what's on his mind. And what did Christ say? You must be Born born again. Now, why did he use that phrase born again? What does that mean? What what is the analogy that he's using there between birth? Why the birth analogy? You're born of water and the spirit. You know, I'm talking about what's. Let me ask a question. You had two kids. Right. What did they do to get born? They, didn't do they did squat, didn't they? they didn't <laughs> Their birth was completely, totally not up to them at all. No. They did nothing. So what is Christ telling Nicodemus? The wind blows where it wills. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, right? right. Mm-hmm. The Spirit blows where it wills, and you do not know where it comes from, where it goes. Even so are they that are born again. What's he telling them? It's not up to you. Who's it up to? The Holy Spirit will blow where he wills. It's up to the Holy Spirit. The whole analogy that Paul is using, or not Paul, but Christ is using in that, he said, just as it was not up to you to get born the first time, technically, it's not up to you to get born the second time. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the individual. But you know what? If you're predestined, what are you going to do? I'm going to believe. I'm going to respond. Don't think that I'm saying that you don't have any part in this. You do. But how can you respond? How can can a person who is dead in trespasses and sin, an enemy of God, say, I repent and believe? How do they do that? By By hearing the word of God. And what does the word of God do? God convicts. God regenerates. And the first thing they can do is believe. It's a work of God. Folks, listen, if there's anything the New Testament tells you, your salvation did not depend on you. It depended on God, because if it depended on you, if you had to do something or you did something, what are you going to talk about all of eternity? How you got there, what you gave up, what you did. And that's the last thing God needs is a bunch of people running around heaven, you know, strutting about how they got there. Yeah. How'd you get here? Well, I gave up my fishnets. Well, I gave up my business. I'm better than that. I should have a little bit better spot than where I'm at. You know, you spent all of eternity. You know, when we get to heaven, and we're all sitting around the throne one day. And we ask him, how'd you get here? Beats me. God chose me. It's grace. How'd you get here? Grace. How'd you get here? Grace. How would you here, Grace. It's all by grace. It's not by what you do. The wind blows where it blows. The spirit does what the spirit does. And we're to be part of that process in the fact that we are to proclaim the truth. We're to preach the truth. We're to teach the truth. And by the way, this is another nice thing about this. What does it mean when you preach the truth? What can you rest assured of doing and not mess up? What don't you have to do? You don't have to water it down. You don't have to make it more acceptable. You don't have to try and see what we do today is we lower the bar, right? Come to Jesus, your life will be happy, everything will be cool, you'll be fine. Is that how Christ preached? Said, you know, if you're not willing to put your hand to the plow and you look back, I don't want you. Let, uh, I'll, I'll come follow you. Let me go bury my father. Now let the dead bury the dead. Let me say bye to my father and mother. Nope, nope. You can look back. Forget it. I don't want you. Christ never lowered the bar, did he? He raised the bar. But you know what? You can raise the bar all the way and and you will do nothing to keep an elect person from heaven. You do not have to water down the gospel. What is the problem with our gospel presentations today for the most part? They're completely watered down, aren't they? When's the last time you heard a pastor say, you know, I invite you to come to Jesus Day, and I want you to know that it may cost you everything. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, you might lose your job. Your wife or your husband might leave you. Your kids may hate your guts. But come to Jesus. Uh, you know, you'd flunk out evangelism school, right? Pulling that one. That's not the way. But you know, that's what Christ said. If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And you know what? They knew what taking up the cross was. That's not dealing with a difficult spouse or a difficult mother-in-law or whatever. That was picking up a piece of wood and walking off to where you're going to be executed. That's what it meant. had nothing to do with this, you know, having a rough time in life kind of thing. It was an abandonment of your own life. And Christ is saying, you want salvation, it's going to cost you everything. And you know what the elect person is going to do? Fine. Sign me up. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. And the non-elect person is going to do what? Nah, I want my sin. I want whatever it is I have. I want that more. I want that more. You know, and you know, the same kind of thing works in the military. You know, you got the green berets and all that. You know, it's hard to get to be a green beret or a SEAL. You know, they don't take just anybody, right? Hey, you're a warm body, got a pulse. Okay, you're in. Let's go. No, you don't. That doesn't work that way, right? You're selected. You're, you're, you know, and not everybody makes it. And, and look, you don't have to lower the standards, folks. We don't have to ratchet down the conditions of the gospel to try and make it palatable to people and try to snooker them into the kingdom. We don't have to do that. Paul says God called me to preach not with glibness of words, not with a smooth tongue not with you know what you see on TV on a lot of the evangelists nowadays where they try to talk them in and schmooze them in and maybe we can get them to become a Christian they won't even know it we got them got them booked <laughs> you know what kind of what kind of Christianity is that what kind of what kind of disciple does Christ want and someone who sold out right does God does Christ want you to be half-hearted? No. Christ says, you choose, your family or me. That's it. You have to make a choice. What are you going to choose? You want your money or do you want me? You can't serve God and mammon. Which one do you want? He doesn't water this stuff down. He doesn't say, well, come to Jesus and be saved. And we'll worry about this whole obedience stuff and all this. We'll worry about all that later on. No, he didn't do that, did he? What do you tell the rich young ruler? Go and sell everything. And a rich young ruler went away sad because he was wealthy. Why? He wasn't willing to give it up. Did he have to give it up necessarily become a Christian, become a believer? No, but what is God saying? If, you're, if you want Christianity and you're not going to be saved. If you, want, if you want God and your sin, you want God and whatever, it doesn't work that way. You abandon yourself. And Paul is saying, Christ called me, God called me to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to not water it down, to not alter it, to not change it but to give it for what it is. and it's up to him to bring the increase. Someone said my job is to get the dinner to the table without dumping it on the floor. <laughs> the waiter is not the one who cooks the food, right? She's not the one who eats it. His job or her job is to get the food from the kitchen to your table and not drop it. That's their job. Our job is to get the message of the gospel from God to the center and not screw it up along the way. That's our job. We don't need to alter it. We don't need to change it. We don't need to water it down. We don't need to try and, you know, um, talk them into it. Oh, it's such a good deal. Sugarcoat. Don't need to sugarcoat it. Say it for what it is. Now, we don't want to be obnoxious, right? You don't want to be obnoxious, but you know what? You don't need to be ashamed of the truth. And later on, Paul's going to say, you know, the the message of the cross of them that are perishing, what? Absolute foolishness. It It is an affront. It is an affront. It is a scandalous thing. I mean, you know, we have this whole big deal on self esteem. It's kind of tough to go up to someone and say, you know, you're damned, you're lost, you're on the way to hell. There's nothing you can do about it, and you're rotten to the core. You know, the psychologists say, Wow, you know, you're 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 assaulting their self esteem. Well, you know what? You've got to have your self esteem assaulted, right? Because that's exactly what you are. It's an it's an the gospel is an offensive message. And what we want to do today is we want to try and alleviate the offense a little bit, so maybe more people will love Jesus. Well, what kind of people are you going to get in that case? You're going to get true believers? No. You're going to get false. That kind of go back to what she was talking my She said, no, "How be beaten up to I feel like what's the difference between preachers might just like that that somebody feel like?" She's talking about a particular genre of pastor that likes to just bash the congregation around. I ever see Pollyanna? Ever watch that movie Pollyanna with um, Haley Mills? Remember that? And the preacher who's Carl Malden? Remember, I, that's. I mean, that you ought to go read, watch that movie. If nothing for that, that illustrates what you're saying. Uh, every 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 day, Carl Malden came in. You know, back then, the, the church was the big community gathering. Everybody in the community went to church Sunday morning. And Carl works himself up into a lather, you know, and he gets up in the pulpit. And he starts bashing people and hellfire and brimstone and yelling and hollering and screaming, you know. Yes. Remember that one? Yeah. And then finally, you know, Pollyanna, or I guess it all works out. And, you know, she and he goes in the next Sunday and he doesn't do that. And, he, you know, he preaches and cares for the people. And it's a whole different. Carl Malden that shows up, you know, as the pastor, you know, you preach the word, you know, and 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 it's gonna be it's gonna be an offensive to it doesn't mean you tell people and warn them about hell, but but the constantly Christ did not constantly beat on people. In fact, it says anything the people wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Now he was rough on the Pharisees, wasn't he? Because they were the hypocrites. But the average person, why do you think people followed him? Because he wasn't—they weren't beat up constantly and bashed into the ground. Yeah, he was kind. They saw love in him, and they saw compassion. And you know, the truth, the truth has an essence of authority to it. It said that he spoke as one with authority. And yeah, he didn't quote everybody else. He spoke the truth straight. So we can do that; it can be done, you know. But th- there's a there's a group of pastors, you know, that that a, a strain of pastors that thinks if you're not beating up on people and bashing them in the head, you're not preaching. And there may there may come a time when you have to preach hard, but you know what? Christ, that's not the way Christ preached and taught. Well, that is kind of how John the Baptist. Well, now, now wait a minute. Who? It depends on who he's preaching to. You know, wh- you know, John's preaching to the multitudes. Now, look, you have a whole bunch of people following John. Now, would they be following John if he was bashing them in the head all day long? No. No. So the very fact that he had a large number of people following John meant what? He was a likable kind of. He wasn't abrasive. I mean, he would tell them the truth. There was no doubt about it. He would proclaim that prepare the way of the Lord, the king is coming, you know, get ready, repent. I mean, he never watered it down. But then the Pharisees trot down to see what's going on. And what did he say? Hey, here comes the snakes. <laughs> uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, I mean, he He went after them. Why Why did he go after them? They were phony. So, what were they interested in? Were they interested in the truth? You know, and that's the interesting thing. Listen, Christ had all the patience in the world for people who honestly wanted to know. But if you wanted to come and play games and try to trap him and try to jerk him around. He had no patience for that. And he would look you in the eye and say, you're a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of rottenness and dead man's bones. You're a big fake and a big phony. And he would look you in the eye and tell you that. And not back down. You know. um, And Paul says in the next verse. The message of the cross. Is foolishness to those who are perishing. What is the message of the cross? Mm -hmm. You are lost. And you can't save yourself. And you know. I mean stop and think about it. If I walked up and say. You know there's this guy. Who 2,000 years ago got nailed on a piece of wood. And died for you. And if you merely have faith in him, you can have eternal life, your sins forgiven, and be on your way to heaven. Now, at face value, what does that sound like? I'm, not lost man. I'm nuts. You're crazy, right? You're bananas. There's no way. What have you been drinking? Or what are you smoking? Can I have some? I mean, it sounds foolish. It sounds crazy. It sounds ridiculous. And so, when we preach the cross and people think, that's crazy, how should we take that? Well, they're acting exactly normal, right? The preaching cross of those of prayer, there are people that ridicule the cross and ridicule the concept of the cross. But you know what? It's the power of God to salvation. Because we understand what it's all about, we understand the message of it. But the world out there, it's nuts, it's crazy. It's stupid. It's ridiculous to think that the death of some guy 2,000 years ago has anything to do not only with my life now, but my life in eternity. It's crazy. It's foolishness. And why is that? Verse 19, for I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Quoting there out of the Old Testament. Bring to naught the wisdom of the wise. Isaiah 29, 14. Now, why did God design salvation that way? That's the way he wanted That's the way he wanted but why did he design it that way? So that it would not be any kind of human. All right. What if, Christ, what if God designed the salvation you needed an IQ of 80 to understand? What happened if he had 79? What if God said, you can come to heaven, but it's going to cost you X? But by totally removing the requirements to the down to the lowest level, it's available to anyone. You don't need to be wise. In fact, Jeremiah says, you know, there's not many wise, not many noble and not many rich. Look at Christianity. By and large, who are the Christians? The riffraff, right? Of the world. They're, they're, from the world's pr- perspective, you're, riff, you know, you're a right-wing uh, religious fanatic nutcake that needs to be sh- silenced. But it is strange, though, if you are a Christian. Don't you feel rich, though? I feel rich, but you know, the world, the world looks at you like a fruitcake. You're nuts. I'm sure they do. You're crazy. You know, and, and what God is, God is saying here is, you know, God designed a salvation because it does not depend on your wisdom. Because if it did, then you could say, well, I was bright enough to respond. And it's like God says, no, it has nothing to do with your IQ. It has nothing to do with your wisdom. All it has to do with is God who does the work in your heart. It's not up to you. And Paul says, you know, I can come and I can be glib and I can I can be a smooth talker, and you know what? That's not going to save people. It's the power of God that saves. And he said in verse twenty Well, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Who are these people? Well, who's the wise people? The educated, the highbrows, go to Oberlin College and talk to the professors there about Jesus Christ and salvation. They'll think you're, you know, they're they're too bright for that. They're too smart to be suckered in by something like that. You're stupid. You need a crutch. If you were educated like they were, you'd understand reality. How many wise? Not a lot. Where is the scribe? Who's the scribe? They're the, the legal expert. They're the law people. They're the ones who know the law. How many of those? Now, how about the disputer of this age? Who's the disputer there? They're the lawyers, the professionals, the experts. These are the, these are the educated people. These are the, the top of the the, the the human cream. So the, the top of the cream, the, the best of humanity. Where are all those? How many of those are Christians? Not a whole lot, right? Why? It doesn't depend on wisdom. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This is interesting. You get a whole, what, what Paul is basically saying here is, you know, God did not design a salvation and was attained by the wisdom of man you could put 200 of the brightest people on the planet in a room and tell them to come up with a path to God and they would get the wrong answer because it's 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 unattainable by human wisdom and in the, and basically he's saying and later on he says this the dumbest thing God ever did if you could say he does a dumb thing is infinitely beyond the sparnest thing any human being could have ever done there's no comparison yeah, I want. To, I don't know why he made a mosquito. I want to know that. <laughs> that was probably the dumbest thing to make a mosquito. You know, it pleased God to make a salvation that you. And, and, and here's the point. What 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 object lesson is God trying to bring through here? You have to abandon your thinking. You have to abandon your viewpoint. You have to abandon. All that you are putting your trust in. And that's what Paul says in Philippians 3, right? He says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, I was, you talk about zeal. I was, I was, Paul was probably the brightest legal expert in the law of his day. And he says, when I looked at that and I looked at Christ, I counted all of this but scuba line excrement, human manure. When I looked at what, when I looked, everything I was putting my trust in, all my education, all my knowledge, all my wisdom, my pedigree, my upbringing, my heritage, meant nothing compared to Christ. And what's God trying to get you to do? He's trying to get you to abandon what you're counting on. Because what you're counting on is not good enough. And God is saying you can't count on your wisdom and your thinking and your intellect to find divine truth. It depends on God doing work in your heart. If, please, God, to the foolishness of the message preached, to say those. The message of the cross is to those who are perishing foolish. You're telling me that God of the universe was weak enough to allow himself to be nailed on a cross and to die? What kind of God is that? For Jews require a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Stop and think about it. In, in, in fact, Colossians brings this out. Who is the brightest being in the universe apart from God? No. Who's the brightest created being? Yeah. Satan, right? Satan's a whole lot smarter than you are, I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, sure Satan's a whole lot smarter than any of us. Satan is the smartest, the wisest, the most brilliant creation in the universe apart from God. He was he was the top of the line. Why did he give him so much grace? Because God said that. Beautiful, wisdom. God was he was perfect in wisdom and beauty, standing for the very presence of God, the very throne of God. Satan was the 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 ultimate creation. He was the head of the, he was the cherubim that covers. He was the head of the heavenly um, praise band. I mean, this guy was next to the throne of God. And what did Satan decide was going to, how did he, Satan decide he was going to destroy Christ? Colossians, what did he decide to do? Have him what? Crucified. Right? If I can just kill him, I win. And what did God say? You know, I I often say, you know, probably one of the most frustrating people in the universe is Satan. Because no matter what he does, God says, thanks. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. See, Satan thought that he was going to win, right? He triumphed. He's in Colossians, he says, I won. I killed him. I got rid of the Son of God. And God is sitting there saying, that's exactly what I wanted you to do. Thanks. I couldn't have done it without you, Satan. No, that's did Satan really know that was Jesus? Absolutely, he did. He knew that was Jesus. He knew what he was doing. He thought that he had won. And then the resurrection day came along. And guess what? He lost. And isn't that what Christ... What it says in Colossians, Christ triumphed over them openly. The the spiritual beings, the, the fallen demons, thought that they had won, and yet Christ won. And how did he win? He won by losing. Now that goes against everything we think of, right? You win by giving up. You win by letting go. And that's the way God designed it. How do you win salvation? In a sense, you let go of everything you're counting on. He who saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it, will find it. You it's the opposite. It doesn't make any sense. It's the last thing you think, and that's how God designed it. Just when you think you lost, you won. And if you try to win, you lose. And that's how God. He said, "We preach Christ crucified to the Jews. What is it? A stumbling block? You're telling me they? I, I nailed my Messiah on a cross? Of wood? No way. That's not the King I'm looking for. And what do the Greeks say? You're nuts. Foolish. Why? Because they're into this dualism, right? Matter is evil, spirit is good. It's a good thing to die because you get rid of the matter. Who wants to come back and be resurrected? But to those who are called, who's the called ones? The elect. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are saved, to those who are elect, what looks like weakness, what looks like failure, what looks like an absolute total disaster is the greatest upset of all time. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. When was God at his weakest? From the human perspective, when Christ was nailed on a cross, right? But yet that was the strongest. It's opposite. God's, God's mathematics and economy are opposite what we think. In Christianity, you win by losing. You lose by winning. Yeah, it goes against it goes against everything you think. That's right. How do you gain eternal riches? You give everything up. Well, man, if I give everything up, I don't have anything. Well, yeah, you do. You have it all. It goes against it. And that's the way God ordained it. That's the way God designed it. And Paul is telling the Corinthians when I came in and I began to preach to you guys, I did not come in with glib speech. I did not come with great wisdom and erudition and all that because you know what? That's not what the cross is all about. It's all about losing, it's all about giving up, it's all about weakness. In weakness, I am made strong. When I lose, God wins. When I give up, I gain. Well, we'll pick up from there next week. We're out of time. Any questions or comments or anything so far? We're going a little bit faster than I would like through this, but we have to because if not, we're not going to get through. We'll get through three chapters in the end of the class, you know, if we don't. I have a comment. Yeah. I couldn't help but think um, just finished Acts. You know, Paul was talking to Festus, and Festus said, you've almost convinced me to be a Christian. Now, if anybody could have done it by, you know, convincing, a convincing argument, laying it out, it would have been Paul. Paul could have done it. And remember, in fact, later on, Paul says, when I came among you, I determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I think it was the Thessalonians he said that. I did not come to you with wisdom of men's words. I came to you... Determined on nothing but Christ and Him, and see, Paul, you know that was that was hard for Paul because what was Paul? The most brilliant human on the planet, probably. And yet, what did he do? He gave up his supposed advantage because, in the eternal scheme of things, that wasn't an advantage at all. Wasn't he, working for any, um, kind of the he was taught under Gamaliel. He would have been the greatest rabbi of the first century had he not become a Christian. He would have been considered the greatest rabbi of the first century. And he gave it all. Father, we thank you for this time and for being here to study your word. Thank you so much for this class and for the encouragement you've granted us. Thank you for this day and pray that you'd help us to think about these things, to ponder them, and we pray that you'd bring us back safely next week. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.